turn to Luke. We uh, started, started the study of Luke this fall. Luke 2, beginning with verse 21. Luke is trying to give us a very detailed account of Jesus. So if you're looking for the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, Luke is a great place to start, as are all the Gospels. Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word, Luke 2, beginning at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses... Torah, first five books, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the Torah of the Lord, every firstborn male should be consecrated to the Lord to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said of the Torah of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the, com- the comforter of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit that day, he went into the temple courts. And the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the law required. Simeon took him in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, You may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. In fact, in Hebrew, it's Yeshua. My eyes have seen your Yeshua. For you have prepared, the one you have prepared in in the sight of all nations. Not just the hope of Israel, but a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then skipping down to verse 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by Torah, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. The grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, he went up to the feast according to the Torah. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem. This next verse just comforts me as a parent. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a whole day. (laughs) Then they began to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the rabbis, listening to them and asking them questions. And everybody who heard him, they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were confused, astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I, I love that, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And they went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. This is God's word. You can be seated. 
like that word treasure means literally to memorize. And Luke is writing a detailed account here, and he's going to people who didn't have just some vague recollection of these uh, events, but firsthand eyewitness accounts who literally treasured these things um, into their hearts. Now, these stories that I just read are, are unique to Luke's account. I mean, this is the only story in the entire Bible of Jesus' childhood. The other Gospels just jump right to Jesus' adult life, or they jump from his birth to his adult life. So the question I think that we have to ask is, why is this here? Why is Luke putting this in his account? And that's a question I ask of every text in Scripture, right? I always ask the why. Why why did God think this to be important, to include it? Or how would the Bible be different if this wasn't here? What is this here to teach us? And I don't want us to miss the obvious here. In fact, I'll just ask this question. Is Jesus a Jew or a Christian? And I remember when that question was first asked to me, it, was, it, it just kind of took me aback a little bit because my first instinct was to say, of course he's a Christian. But then you th- think about it and you think about it I mean, look at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise a child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Why is Jesus circumcised? And why does it have to be the eighth day? Well, every Jew, going all the way back to Abraham, is circumcised. And they're not just circumcised, but God instructed them in Genesis 17, verse 12, to do it on the eighth day. Why? I'm a little squeamish talking about circumcision in front of you all right now. Um, Let's just get that out of the way. God made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant that would not only be to bless Abraham and Abraham's family and the nation that would come from Abraham, but also through Abraham would come one who would bless all the families of the earth. And Abraham, of course, this whole thing is is based upon him having a son, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's approaching 100 years. And finally, he he, he comes to God with a little chutzpah and says, God, how am I to know that you're going to keep your promise? So God says, all right, go get some animals. Abraham gets some animals. He knows exactly what God is doing. God's saying, we're going to do the the ancient ceremony of making a covenant. It's kind of like a wedding ceremony. Abraham knew exactly what to do with those five animals because these, these ceremonies were common in his day. He cut them in half, put half on each side with the blood uh, flowing in the middle, and then each partner, party would walk through the pieces, get their toes in the blood to make a commitment to the other person. I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. Of course, God on that day does something amazing Not only does he pass through the pieces once, but twice. And the second time it's in Abraham's place to really say to Abraham, Abraham, this whole thing's on me. And I'm going to keep my end, and I'm going to be responsible even for your end. And it's soon after this that God then says, I want your sons to be circumcised, because that, in essence, was like the wedding ring. 
And God wanted to place this symbol of the covenant on, the, on their reproductive organ. So that every time they went to the bathroom, or every time they were tempted to adulterate their, their, their relationship to God, they would be reminded that they were a people who were bound to God. They were in covenant with him. And so on the eighth day, um, going all the way back to Abraham, uh, sons are circumcised. This is also the day uh, where a Jewish child gets their name. It's not on the day they're born, but it's on the eighth day because eight symbolizes it's the first day of a new week. It's rebirth. It's being reborn into God. And remember, for, for, for a Jew, a name is more than just a label, but it spells out a person's place and purpose in the world. And Jesus, he's, he's named Jesus, which means what? Does anybody know? It means salvation of Yahweh. And so this would be burned into Jesus' identity already as a little kid. He would know that this was his place and purpose in the world, to be the salvation of Yahweh. And not only does Luke say that Jesus was circumcised, but then a little bit later, his parents took him to the temple. They had to wait for the 40 days after the birth because uh, Jewish women are declared, according to Leviticus 12, to be unclean for 40 days. And don't think that's because God looks down on childbirth. I mean, that couldn't be further from the truth because the womb is probably the most sacred space on earth. It's where the creator of the universe creates life. But even in carrying out life's highest calling, this is a reminder to Mary and Joseph of their need for atonement. So after these 40 days, you take your firstborn child to the temple to dedicate them. Why? Look at verse 22. And the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses. Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Why is he presented to the Lord? Because of the next verse, verse 23. As it is written in the Torah, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. This is Exodus 13, verse 2, and verse 13, where God says, every firstborn belongs to me. The firstborn of your flocks, the firstborn of your herds, the first things that are harvested every year. God always gets the first. And it even applied to their own children. Abraham, take your son, your firstborn son, and offer him up as a sacrifice. You see, this is why Christians don't even like to go here. It's like, just... Let me read the New Testament. Because it seems icky to us. What kind of God is this who demands our firstborn son? It's just another reminder that we are all debtors to a holy God. That we all owe him something as great as our firstborn son. Do you know that? But see, like Abraham, the firstborn son could be ransomed by offering to God a lamb in its place. So God says, when you offer to me your firstborn, it's either your firstborn or a lamb. And bring bring your son to the temple 
And so I can picture Mary and Joseph going to the temple. I picture Mary having Jesus in her arms. And I picture Joseph having a lamb in his arms. However, the text tells us he doesn't have a lamb because they're too poor to even afford the lamb. So then the the Torah says if you're too poor to afford a lamb, you can just take two pigeons. And I picture them going up to the priest, and the priests, we even know exactly what they said. The priest would ask the parents, is it going to be the son or is it going to be the lamb? And I see Joseph saying, here's our offering. And Jesus at that moment was ransomed. And I don't know if you see the irony of this. That Jesus is ransomed. He's spared by a lamb. So that one day, he can be the lamb to end all lambs who's going to ransom and spare not just Mary and Joseph, not even just Mary and Joseph's people, but he's going to spare us. Mark 10 verse 45 says, For the Son of Man came not to serve, but to give his life up as a ransom for many. You see, we, just, we, we miss all of this if we don't know the whole book, if we don't know the whole story. And here's the thing that I understand more as, as I seek to understand the whole book. It's just how hard the God of the universe is trying to communicate to the human race. And he goes to such lengths to just prepare the table just perfectly, to prepare people, to to put all these things in their place so that the world is prepared to understand Messiah so that when Messiah comes, we can actually make sense of it. I'll tell you how he's doing it. He's doing it through a story because if you know the Bible, the Bible is relentlessly a story. It's incredible. It's this, it's this one big story that explains the world that we live in, explains why the world is good and why the world is evil, explains such difficult realities like why is there evil and suffering in the world, explains all the big questions like where did I come from and where am I going to go when I die and what's the meaning of life in between those things. And at the heart of it, the story explains God. Who God is, what God has been up to from the very beginning to make everything right. That's why if you know enough about this whole story, you can sum up what the story is about in one word. Christ. And you can't know Christ apart from the story. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this now is the gospel that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was raised according to the scriptures. What are the scriptures? It's the Old Testament. See, Paul's saying you can't even understand the meaning of the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, unless you understand them in light of the scriptures. And see, so many people today are just making Jesus into whatever they want Jesus to be. You can make Jesus into a flower child hippie. You can make him into a political activist. You can make him into a great philosopher. You can make him into this health and wealth guy. 
You can dress him up, blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, would the real Jesus stand up? And how would we know? Right here. You see, we don't get to rewrite this. We don't get to reshape it. We don't get to de-Jewify it. God, from the beginning, picked Israel. He made special promises to them. Even Jesus will say, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. Christians need to accept that. He didn't go to church. He didn't celebrate Christmas and Easter. Instead, he was circumcised. He was raised in a godly Jewish home where Torah was probably read every single day. He ate kosher. He wore tassels. He went to synagogue. He celebrated Sabbath. He participated in all the Jewish feasts. He was born a Jew. He lived a Jew. He died a Jew. King of the Jews. And that king of the Jews is the hope for the world. He is. But you and I, we, we run right to the fact that he's, he's the world's savior without first seeing his biblical and Hebrew roots. And when we do this, we rob him of who he is. It's like a kite without the tail. That kite can just go all over the place. It needs a tail. It's a text. In fact, at the end of Luke's gospel, on a day when all Jesus' followers are depressed, it's resurrection day and Jesus is raised raised from the dead. And he's walking with two of these disciples who are in despair. And they don't recognize him. It's just hilarious. And he says, why are you guys sad? And they're like, don't you know what happened? The hope of Israel. The one we placed our hope in. They killed him. You know what it says next? Jesus starting with the law of Moses, Torah, Genesis going through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, into the writings, into the prophets, explains who he is and why the Christ had to suffer and die. And I love what it says next about these guys. It says, did our hearts, did did they just not burn? Burn. Where's the burn today? And part of the reason we don't burn is because We just make Jesus into whatever we want him to be. And we fail to do the hard work of seeing Jesus where Jesus has placed himself in this book. You don't get to understand Jesus from your dreams. You don't get to understand Jesus from just getting a special word from God. I am so tired of this special word from God because it just reeks of of, of Christians and their need to be special and unique and stand out and look at me. This is special. Let it be special. And this is where we get to find him. Capiche? <laughs> but the Jesus, the, 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 the Christ of my faith must first be the Jesus of history and the Jesus of history is the Jesus of this book. And the Jesus of this book is a Jew. He's king of the Jews. He's a hope of all nations. 
I think the book of Ruth really gives us great marching orders on how we as Christians are to be because it's uh, a story that is beautiful and it ends with the hope of Messiah at the very end. Uh, But within this story, you have Ruth, who's a Gentile, who's brought into the whole story. And I I think her response is what Christians' response needs to be. It requires humility to say what she said. Your people will be my my people, and your God will be my God. We will say that. Now, the second takeaway from, from what we just read you think about this the first 30 years of Jesus life are really just quite ordinary he's born to ordinary less than ordinary parents he's raised in this village called Nazareth which is just pretty ordinary even less than ordinary village and really other than this story that we just read when he's 12 there's there's nothing else to really write about There are all these extra biblical accounts, these legends about Jesus in his boyhood, but but God didn't want those to be in his word. So I want us to think about this. The God of the universe didn't become a comic hero. He didn't become Superman. In fact, he's not even born into privilege. And for 30 years, day after day, Week after week, year after year, God in flesh, Jesus, becomes a normal dude. Just living a pretty mundane life. I don't know if that does anything to you. But we're Americans. Americans love the spectacular. We're, we're, we're drawn to people and to things that, that can make a big splash. Things that are ordinary or people that are ordinary kind of just rub us wrong. In fact, I don't know if there's a, a worse adjective than to just say that that thing is ordinary or, or that life is, is mundane because from, from the time we've been young, we've been taught that we need to be noticed and we need to be unique and we need to be original and we need to stand out and we need to be spectacular and to do spectacular things. And then at least if we can't be that, we try to find people or events that are that. I think American Idol is probably the epitome of so much of our culture today, and sadly, I think a lot of this culture has seeped its way into Christianity. I mean, how many Christians today just feel this need need to be unique and to be special and, and to experience something that's spectacular, to do things that are spectacular? What happens then sometimes is we even use our faith, our faith, as the means for us to stand out and to be unique and to be different and to be original. And I think as a result, we've created all these false expectations for what the Christian walk really is or what Christian ministry should look like. And so we use words like radical and spectacular and charismatic and high impact. But all this has done is it's left so many Christians who are just feeling disillusioned and disappointed, restless, and sometimes burnt out. 
I'll play my card. I'm done with this. I've been done with it for some time. I'm done with needing it. I'm done with seeking it. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older and, and more, more cynical. I don't know. <laughs> but this, this whole liberation for me really started about four or five years ago when we went and moved to Israel and we spent a whole semester in a whole other culture. And anyone who lives long enough outside of the United States of America begins to understand just how Disneyland United States of America is. You start to see just the, the American idol nature of our culture and just how we are so attention-needing and we're so obsessed with ourselves and how we have this need to always be original and to stand out. I'll just show you a picture of something I saw regularly that God just used in my life. And I would just, I, I would, whenever I saw this, God would just do a work in my heart. This guy's not blogging. He's not tweeting. He's not even thinking about himself. That part of the world doesn't think about themselves. They're part of a family, a clan, a, a people. He's probably a father, a husband, and a shepherd. And I want that. And I'm going to fight for that. Because I can be that as a father. God's given me a few sheep. I can be that as a pastor. God's given me a few sheep. I can be that as a football coach. God gives me a few sheep. And we can call it a day. And we can call it a life. And there's so much liberty in that. Maybe you're starting to get into my world of being a pastor and all of this. But there's liberty when you start to understand the whole thing is about mundane faithfulness. A long obedience in the same direction. In fact, if there's one blog that I follow, it's a former student of mine. She came into our youth group years ago. First time she showed up, I just thought, because she was, she was popular and all that. I'm like, you're too good to be here tonight. A few weeks later, she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She has never turned her back on Christ. Today, she's married four young children. And she is literally dying of cancer. Where she has months to live. You know what her blog's called? MundaneFaithfulness.com That's the deal. Because at the end of the day, we're not even that shepherd. We're just a sheep. And there's nothing spectacular about sheep except for the fact that sheep just follow their shepherd with mundane faithfulness day after day, week after week, year after year. That's spectacular. And to see Kara, I'll show you a picture of her. There she is. Pray for her. 
Go to her blog. Learn from her. Mundane faithfulness. It's spectacular. Okay, there's one more piece here. Let's go to verse uh, 40. Please leave that up. In case you guys get bored with me, you can pray. It says, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. The grace of God was on him. Okay, and then the, the verse just like it, verse 52, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. And then sandwiched between these two verses is a story that explains what Jesus' growth and maturity look like. And Luke tells the story of, of Passover. In fact, it says that Jesus and his family didn't miss a Passover. Of course they didn't miss a Passover. They're Jewish. And Passover is one of those pilgrimage feasts on the calendar where every Jew travels to Jerusalem for a whole week with Jews from all over the world. They celebrate uh, what God did when he rescued them and set them free from being slaves in Egypt and how God brought them to himself and informed them as his own people. We mentioned this last week. Nazareth to Jerusalem is an 80-mile journey, so it's about three days each way. The way you do this, and this is how you need to know, that Joseph and Mary are, are not near as responsible as it looks in leaving Jesus behind. Because you would go and you would depart with grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles and cousins, and it would be this huge entourage of people. So I picture it. Now it's time to go. You've been there for a week. You've, you've celebrated. You've made memories. The story's been pushed deeper inside of you, and it's time to go. Jesus, make sure you get this, this, and this. We're going to be leaving in 15 minutes. I just see Jesus making his way into the city to go into the temple because it's one whole day of travel before they even realize he's missing. And in the text, it takes them three days of searching before they find him. And then they find him where? Look at verse 46. He's in the temple. What's he doing? He's in the middle of a bunch of rabbis asking them questions. Now, don't be fooled into thinking that this is just Jesus being inquisitive. Because there are two things that mark a rabbi. First, they always um, sit when they teach. Jesus is sitting with them. Another thing that marks a rabbi is that they always answer a question with another question. It's called rabbinic dialogue. A rabbi will rarely answer a question with a question. In fact, if you look at how Jesus taught throughout the Gospels, he's almost always sitting, and he oftentimes, when a person asks a question, responds with another question. It's not because Jesus just wants us to be open-minded on everything, but think about this. First, you can't know the truth unless you ask the right question. Also, and this happens to me a lot, I'm not nearly as rabbinic as Jesus, but if you ask me a question and I give you the answer, whose answer is that? That's mine. But if I answer your question with a question that almost helps clarify the question you're asking and gets you to a point where you can answer it yourself, now whose answer is it? It's yours. And that truth is yours. 
Now we know that the best rabbis in, in the world would, would be attracted to the temple. This is where they would teach. And these are guys who knew the text backwards and forwards. This literally would be the equivalent of a 12-year-old going to MIT and hanging out with a bunch of physicists talking physics. And look at verse 47, what it says. They were amazed at Jesus. They couldn't believe how much this 12-year-old knew. Here's my question. How did Jesus know the book so well? Well, these guys, they're stunned. A lot of us just think Jesus was uneducated from this backwoods town called Nazareth. Listen, Jesus' knowledge of Scripture, yes, it's supernatural because all knowledge of Scripture is supernatural. We still need the, the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart so we can understand this. But Philippians 2 says that Jesus emptied himself of all the divine nature and became like one of us. In other words, he had to learn it. And what we know today about devout Jews of this time is that these people knew the book. They had a passion for the book. To know it, and to know it sometimes so well that they had large chunks of it memorized already at a young age. This is what Josephus, the historian writing at this time, says about the Jewish people. He says, above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children and regard it as the most essential task in life, the knowing and the observing of Torah. The Mishnah and other uh, collections of Jewish writings that some, most of these predate Jesus, some by hundreds of years. In the Mishnah, it says at five years of age, one is ready for the study of the written Torah, the Bible. At 10 years of age for the study of the writings and the prophets. That'd be the Psalms, Proverbs, and the rest of Torah. At 13 for Bar Mitzvah, the coming of age ceremony. At 15 for the study of the Holocaust, which is how does this stuff that we know and we've hidden in our heart, how does it get walked out? All of that by 15. In fact, even if you know the book well enough and you look at Mary's song and you look at Zachariah's song, they're not just making up some song. The song that they're singing is the text. It's verses from all over the Bible. And when it's time to praise God, they just pull this verse with this verse and this verse and put them together and it becomes music. And that means they have to know the, the book incredibly well from priest to peasant. They know the book. Jesus knew the text. His whole life is guided by scripture. Everything Jesus says is commentary on scripture. Everything Jesus does is rooted in scripture. His whole life is guided by this. I love this. Mary and Joseph finally find him. Your father and I. We've been looking for you. What are you doing here? What does Jesus say? I had to be here. What do you mean you had to be here? Psalm 
69, a messianic psalm says, zeal for your house will consume me. Mom, I had to be here. You see, people like to speculate, like when was it that Jesus really, it dawned on him that I'm the Messiah. And you watch things like Jesus Christ Superstar, The Last Temptation of Christ, and they portray Jesus as as struggling with his identity even up until his death. Like, is this really who I am? Luke shows us at age 12, Jesus knows who he is. This is who I am. I had to be here. Of course, Mary and Joseph, it says, are confused. That's what the real Jesus does. He confounds us sometimes. He he confuses us. He confronts us. He challenges our expectations of who he is and and what we think he ought to be and, and how we ought to do things. He confronts that all the time in my life. But later in his life, Going back to that story, Resurrection Day, those two disciples who are despairing, and this stranger comes and walks alongside of them. It's Jesus, and they don't know it's Jesus. Jesus says the same thing to them, and he said to Mary, Didn't you know I had to? I had to suffer? I had to die? I had to. He knows the text. And if you know the text, you know the backdrop even to the story in Luke 2. The, the, the backdrop is Passover. And part of Passover would include uh, the dad taking his son or sons to the temple to pick out the lamb. And then it was the father's job, once the lamb was picked out, he would slit the throat, the, the, the priest would collect the blood, throw it on the altar, the priest would then uh, prepare the lamb for them to eat the lamb later that night. I picture little kid Jesus going with Joseph, and, and at some point, Dad, why do we have to do this? And now here he's 12, and, and when his dad does the, the, the slitting of the throat and the blood being poured out, he knows. Not just the meaning of that lamb, but I think he knows that years down the road, on another Passover, he is going to be the lamb whose blood will atone for the sins of the world. doesn't end with that, does it? For three days, just like Mary and Joseph, the world couldn't find him. But on the third day, into our despair and into our hopelessness, Jesus is alive and he is resurrected. If Jesus had such a high view of the book, shouldn't we? Let's pray. God, this is just why we can even trust you today. Even though you confound us, you confront us, you challenge us, you don't always meet our expectations for what you think you should be. 
We can trust you because you are the Lamb of God. And you gave your life up for us. So that someday you'll raise our life from the dead. And I just pray, God, that we would seek you and find you in the place you've placed yourself. And that we'd know you with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. We have uh, uh, the quality of something, isn't it?